Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, unfindability, death, awakening, vividness, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking once again with Eric Davis. Eric Davis is an author, podcaster, award-winning journalist, and popular speaker based in San Francisco. He is probably best known for his book, Technosis, cult classic of visionary media studies that investigates how our fascination with technology intersects with the religious imagination. Eric's most recent book is High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s. Eric is also a long-term practitioner of meditation, particularly in the Zen tradition. And now I give you the episode that I call Transgression with Eric Davis. Hey, Eric, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. It's great to be back. Yeah, I'm casting my mind back. It must be like five years or something. I don't know. It's been a while since you were first on the podcast. And I'm just remembering that in that conversation, which we did one-on-one, this is pre-pandemic, we did it one-on-one in a little recording booth in San Francisco, but I had never met you before. So there we were face-to-face having this discussion kind of cold. Yeah, yeah. It's actually really nice. We have this very obvious marker of the beginning of a friendship and a partnership. It's really become quite interesting and quite rich. Yeah. And here we are now, like all these years down the line, and we've co-founded the Alembic together, us and with Katie Devaney, and done at least one more podcast and worked on a lot of things. And at the same time, here we are speaking over the internet rather than in person. So kind of funny balance there. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. Now, just to plug your new thing, don't you have a really cool book coming out about acid? It is true. It's not out probably quite as much as people will want it to be when they hear about it. It's not going to be out until Bicycle Day month, you know, in April, (laughs) in the spring. April 24, yeah, depending on when someone's listening to this. Yeah, it's called Blotter, the untold story of an acid medium. And I got to work with a fellow named Mark McLeod, who has the largest archive of street blotter, as well as what you could call art blotter, vanity blotter, blotter that's made as like a collectible, non-dosed item. And so I got to kind of tell this story. And it's very rare and blessed opportunity to write something about psychedelics these days that nobody else has written about. <laughs> which is itself a remarkable achievement, but especially one that is so interesting, you know, having to do with questions of art and media and criminality. One of the interesting things about this project that I think relates to some of the things we're going to talk about today is that the whole medium of blotter, putting LSD on paper, and it actually ends up being not really blotter paper most of the time, but a sort of cardstock, and figuring out how to dose it efficiently, how to perforate it so you can tear off the tabs, how to print it, what kind of inks. There's a lot of like technical things as well as sort of media questions. What sort of imagery do we put on it? What's the function of the imagery? All these sort of interesting questions, but they're all done inside the underground. There's nothing like it anywhere else. So it's a completely criminal 
operation. So it's criminal art, it's criminal design, it's criminal media, and that makes a difference. Um, and so I got to sort of think about what is this difference? And with Blotter in particular, one of the interesting shifts in the medium is that up to around 2000, it's only used to spread drugs. You know, it's only used as a medium for LSD, uh, or at least, you know, maybe sometimes fooling people sometimes when it doesn't have any LSD on it, but it's sold as such. And then around 2000 or in the late 90s, mid late 90s, people started to turn it into a collectible where it was bought and sold without drugs on it as something to collect. So you could actually see in the history of the medium what happens when things sort of leave the zone of criminality and become sort of just a general item of trade, but it retains all these relationships. So it's like the cops can still bust you. Is it actually illegal? And then things happen where people make them just to trade you know, because the pictures are pretty and you can sign it or something. But then people who are dipping acid can buy those and then dip acid with them. So then they become illegal again. So <laughs> there's this wonderful edge around the criminal. And it made me think about, you know, one thing, and again, I think this is a real interesting topic to explore about questions of risk, of boundaries, of transgressions. If you think about the images on Blotter as a kind of brand, which is not really quite right, but let's just go with it, or a kind of sigil or an icon or a magic circle, all of the development of the imagery, which has something to do with advertising, something to do with media, there's no like conventional capitalism involved. So it's like a parallel world. And then now, you know, in psychedelics, we get to see what happens when as psychedelics become accessible and increasingly legal or at least non-scheduled and certainly embraced widely, that we're getting to watch what happens when the familiar engines of consumerism and branding and companies transform companies, companies, the formulations of mushrooms, you know, there's like DMT pens that come in little packages that have little aliens on them. And I mean, it's just that we get to see like the engines of conventional marketing transform the meanings of these things in our lives. And it's really quite a distinct kind of transformation. I mean, we're in kind of a gray area right now, but it's a very interesting place to understand these boundary crossings, these transgressions as we move between different categories of things. It's very fascinating. And I don't know about you, but there is both kind of a moment of wonder and release and maybe a little bit of joy when you're like, wow, this thing that was forbidden is now not forbidden. But it's a very short path from there to this thing is now a little bit less interesting or a little bit boring. Yes. It just becomes a consumer product, which just puts it in such a different place in the imaginal realm. It does. And I think that's really, you know, part of the key is to figure out what's actually going on with that sense of a transformation or a sense of a change. Because I think it's actually really significant and really deep and says things not just about drugs, but about, you know, other topics that we're interested in with 
spirituality, with value, with the sacred. And one way of thinking about it is that there's a kind of protection that occurs when things are illegal. And it's very hard to talk about this because, you know, we have to acknowledge right on the bat, like all the tremendous human suffering that has occurred through the war on drugs and the fact that individual lives, particularly the lives of individual acid dealers, were destroyed by the draconian laws around LSD and particularly some of the carrier weight laws that meant that people who were selling or holding a relatively small amount of LSD would go to jail for very long periods of time because the weight of the carrier, i.e. the blotter paper or the pills, was factored into their sentences. So extraordinarily punitive measures done out of a bitter, cruel, and politically motivated spirit that motivated the war on drugs. Obviously, we have nothing to do but castigate this horrible regime. That said, one of the things that's missing, I believe, in a lot of the contemporary discussion about psychedelic mainstreaming is that there's a real loss when things move from the underground. And we haven't reckoned with that loss. We don't even know how to describe it. And you alluded to it a little bit there. There's something that really feels different and too easy, cheaper, more lame, more whatever, more like everything else. It's easier to see and more broadly visible with cannabis because we've seen it on a, you know, kind of a national level, depending on what state you're in. But, you know, it's happened, you know, widely in many different places and there's shops everywhere. So we've seen the engines of consumerism. And I bet that people who had a good, rich relationship with cannabis, you know, the early areas of medicalization are a little bit different because they're not quite so consumerized, but certainly by, you know, the middle of last decade or so, you know, the last 10 years, 15 years, that if they look at their own feelings and relationships with the material from when it was illegal and they had to get it from a dealer and they had to be a little bit circumspect about it, maybe very circumspect about it, depending on what community they lived in, and then look at it now, while there is a absence of a certain kind of paranoia, a certain kind of fear, and that's great, there is a loss. And what is that loss about? It's actually really important for us to wrestle with that because it's not just like, oh, it's like an inner circle thing. It's like, no, 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 it's more than that. There's something about things that are declared illegal or forbidden or taboo or unacceptable that create subjective experiences, they create social relations, they create ways of entering and moving through the world that have some profound kind of initiatory character. And for modern people who grow up in this kind of mush where, you know, it's sort of a relativistic situation. Yeah, there's certain laws that we all kind of agree on. It's bad to kill people, da 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 But really, we don't have like a world that's structured by taboos. We don't have the kind of tensions around a lot of things. There are a lot of things that this still applies to. But in many ways, I think people, especially young people, are driven by the desire for some kind of initiatory experience, some kind of transformation that moves you from one state to another, some kind of secret that is revealed and in that revelation shifts your mode. And these are things that we see in traditional societies all over the world, where there's these rites of passage, there's puberty rites, and these aren't just 
like, oh, now you're a man. They're like initiatory. And it's the same with women, often with menstruation. It's not just like, oh, well, now you're a woman, you can have kids. It's like you're actually initiated. You actually discover secrets about the cosmos. You're told stories that you didn't know before. So there's a real sense of transformation. And I think that for many of us, certainly for me, and I can definitely speak for the people around me when I was growing up, that cannabis and psychedelics really functioned that way. And that's a really powerful kind of meaning world that just doesn't translate into the contemporary environment. And I'm not to say that we should have that. Certainly, if the cost of it is the horrors of the war on drugs, it's not worth it. You know, I would rather have the kind of shitty regime that we have in California around cannabis that ruined many lives of people who were mom and pop folks living a cool life, you know, creating good medicine, sending it out there. And a lot of those people are having a tough time. We've had to move on to other things. So it's been rough because of the way in which the regulations have worked. And I want to get into those details. But if that's the cost for giving the cops one less mechanism to incarcerate brown and black people, that's worth it for me, even though it is a loss. But it's still important to acknowledge that shift because especially from a spiritual level, there's a change and there's a change in cannabis. And I think there is already a change in psychedelics and there will continue to be one that have specific spiritual cost because there's a spiritual power to doing something that's forbidden. And it's hard to talk about, but it's real. Yes. Transgression as a path to enlightenment is a really well-known method. And it's right there in so much of, let's say, Vajrayana Buddhism or non-dual Shaiva Tantra or other forms of Tantra, where certain types of transgression are central rituals to the practice and considered centrally important to the awakening and powerful instigators of actual awakening. And it's so fascinating. I mean, these transgressions are mainly the transgressions around social taboos. And of course, they're pointing towards the way that we construct a social world and the human constructedness of the social world and our place in it. And the way that, especially in the traditional societies in which these tantric practices were envisioned and enacted, people were much more embedded in a society filled with very strong taboos. And the cost of an infraction there was immense. Losing one's caste or whatever could be socially completely destructive. And so there's a lot of skin in the game, and yet the embeddedness of someone in a social world actually was seen as, in a way, holding you back from what's beyond this, to put it in a really negative way, the cage of rules in your mind. And these kind of ritual transgressions were seen as a way to break out of the cage of the mind, boom, and suddenly experience actual freedom for the first time, freedom from this socially constructed straitjacket. And you can see, just as you're talking about the world of, let's say, illicit drugs in the States, like they're always or very often offering the same thing, like free your mind, right? 
and your ass will follow. Like there's a whole thing there about you break the rule and you are set free. And so it's not a minor theme in spiritual practice, especially tantric spiritual practice. It's a major theme. And that theme is even there in Judeo-Christian religions, even though we don't tend to think of it that way. Part of the understanding of being a human being in a Christian world where we're living within a divinely created realm that has God's laws as sinful, feet of clay, regular human beings, we're always transgressing those laws. And the whole understanding of redemption is that we require grace, right? To bring us back into the holy, bring us back into the sacred, bring us back into this kind of freedom, right? So transgression is sort of assumed as just part of being a person there. And that's the function of Christ's salvation is to redeem us from this transgression. It's such a major theme. It's there in virtually every religious system one way or another. One way or another, no, it's really key. And I mean, it's really true to even underscore that with Christianity, but particularly one way of looking at Paul and a lot of Paul's discussion of the law, and it's speaking specifically of the Jewish law, that one of the invitations or one of the moves that was made to make Christianity what it was, was to say, well, actually, yes, this is essentially the culmination of a Jewish situation, but in order to join us, you actually don't have to follow the law to the extent that you don't have to get circumcised. And this obviously made a lot of people very excited because it lowered the cost of joining, joining the uh, church. But on top of that move, Paul built a whole theology of this relationship of love and the law. And so in some sense, Christianity begins with breaking the law, with saying, no, those laws, they are now fulfilled and transformed in this new spiritual possibility. So it's quite striking when you think about the way in which, like in modern America, Christianity relates to ideas of law and judgment and order. It's very different. But that subversive element is very much part of Jesus' story and his relationship to lepers and his social position. And you can go on and on about that dimension in Christianity. And then you go into Tantra, and it's extraordinary. And I think there's a paradox here that's worth savoring a little bit. And that is that as modern people growing up in the university system in the last couple of decades or 30 years, 40 years, whatever, uh, you know, we're all taught that things are social constructions. We have this idea of the social construction. So law is a social construction. Gender is a social construction. And there's kind of some slippage in there that I think we don't quite, we don't really like unpack what that means always. People often say that in a kind of dismissive way, as if it's only, well, it might seem like it's really significant or really fixed in reality, but it's actually just a social construction, so it's no big deal. Or it's just sort of amorphous. It doesn't have any real bite from the perspective of reality. But that's not really what it says. <laughs> you know, when you say that law is a social construction, that means you have to go through social processes to create a law. But once you have a law and the law is instantiated by police and by the legal system and even more importantly by our own minds, by our own sense of like where that line is, it's a real thing. It has real effects. 
Yeah, it's going to socially construct your ass right into prison. You know? Yeah, exactly. And also just the ideas that are associated with it become very real. Then when you go back to the case of the Tantra, where you know there are extraordinary risks to breaking these social laws that are so much more embedded in reality than what we experience with a lot of the laws and social conventions in our extremely pluralistic and divisive society where everyone's belief about one thing is countered by the people on the other side of the aisle. And so we're all kind of fighting this, like, well, where are the laws? Like, what are the rules? Is gender real? Is it not? You know, it's such a different situation than these relatively homogenous societies where there are some social rules that are just like full on, you know, don't eat the cows. The cows are sacred. And so then to break that rule on the one hand becomes kind of a allegory of freedom because it's like, wow, nothing really happened to you. But to have that really have force, you need that social construction to be like really significant. But in our modern world, it becomes much more complicated and also harder to find those social norms that are strong enough to be transgressed to have that kind of power, but are also not like horrifyingly violent and abusive. And so it's a very weird thing. And I'm kind of curious. I mean, I know you've been teaching more about Tantra and in your recent courses. And, you know, and part of the motive there is to like what in the Tantric tradition can be reframed and adapted and brought into a modern, you know, semi-secular spiritual path. How have you been thinking about that quality of the real power that's in secrecy and transgression within the traditional tantric framework? It's a huge question, right? It's a huge question. I feel like if we look at what's there traditionally, it only makes sense in traditional Hindu society. So it's spoken about in terms of substances, because traditional Hindu society with the caste system and so on is very concerned about what you touch and so on. And so the substances that are utterly forbidden and that you take part in for the ritual, there's five of them, and they're called the five M's because in Sanskrit they start with the sound M. But it's fish and meat and wine or booze and illicit sex. And then the fifth one is called mudra, which is translated as parched grain. Probably that's some kind of code word for something else. Nobody knows what it is. But let's say meat, fish, sex, and booze. Okay. These are the hugely forbidden things, especially for a high caste person like a Brahmin. And in these secret rituals, you partake of these substances. You eat meat and you have sex and you drink some alcohol. Now, as you could hear to us, it's sort of like this big shrug, like, what? You know, so what? We do that every day. There's just zero forbiddenness in that. So maybe like if you're a vegan teetotaler who is in a monogamous relationship, you could get a little bit of juice out of the forbiddenness of that. But for most of Western society, we eat meat and drink booze and have sex every day. So, so what, right? But of course, like we've been talking about, that's not the point. The point is what do we have that is forbidden? And there might be a real cost to partaking of or doing or even thinking, like are there thought crime transgressions that are available and so on. 
And so I think in a way, the answer to your question is, well, this remains to be seen and it's a creative process of people attempting to adapt Tantra to the modern West. And in a way, it's such a powerful way of practicing. And in another way, there's just so many ways it does. It's so culturally specific. It's really hard to translate some of it. But I think there are some really intriguing possibilities. I'll give you one that comes up. And it's not that there's a big social cost to this exactly, but it does, I think, for many people feel kind of wrong if they're in a meditation tradition, if they've been in a typical meditation tradition. And that is the emphasis is not just on moksha. It's not just on liberation, which is this ultimate transcendence. And if you've been doing certain types of Buddhism or certain types of meditation practice or Hindu meditation practice, it's always about liberation, 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 and this kind of transcendence. Whereas when we get into the Vajrayana, the tantric stuff, we start to include pleasure, bhoga, right? You can enjoy stuff. And I am now seeing this really commonly if I start working with someone who's from a let's say, Vipassana tradition, where their view is that in the end, every experience comes with a grain of suffering. And in the end, you shouldn't want anything or even, and this is part of the deep teaching, want any experience. It's filled with suffering. It's kind of understandable at a low level when you're a noob, but as you get up there in the ranking of your our hardship or move towards our hardship, your fruitions, you should start. Those wanting of having any type of pleasure at all should just fall away. And so there's this implicit and often, it's always implicit, but sometimes even explicit, real fear and judgment around saying like, hey, you can work really powerfully with desire. You can work really powerfully with beauty. You can work really powerfully with the imaginal. And you can see people are like, what? That's not okay. I'm not supposed to desire anything. And in fact, you can even see some of this in a mild way in the pushback that Robert Bea got for switching from teaching Vipassana and jhanas and stuff to his imaginal work, what is called soul making. Oh my God, he said there's a soul and you can work with the imaginal. It's like got this certain quality of forbiddenness that I think is maybe tame compared to like, you're going to be fired from your job and lose your family. But it's still got this little frisson there of like, ooh, isn't that wrong? Isn't that bad? And then what would I do if I started being able to work powerfully, creatively, with this part of life. Anyway, that's one that I'm noticing that is kind of interesting. I think there's quite a few other possibilities. Yeah, what's coming up for me, there are really two things. One is just how the Western reception of Tantra takes place in a larger context that is the kind of the growth of subcultural orientation or a countercultural orientation where transgression and the sacred and sexuality and pleasure are sort of linked. And it's fascinating to kind of think about it in that zone, because one way of understanding what happens like, you know, I don't want to get in all the details of how far back you go with the counterculture or bohemian cultures in general, but bohemian cultures going back to 
the 19th century, you often see this combination of hedonism, breaking social rules, and some kind of quality of the sacred or the imaginal that is at play, often in a kind of experimental, sometimes exoticizing way. So there's some weird connection between transgression, pleasure, and something like spirituality. And of course, in the 60s, this explodes, where you have the paradox of the hippie who, you know, indulges in extraordinary drug-fueled sexual experiences, but then only eats fruit because they're ascetic. There's like this weird tension between asceticism and indulgence that becomes kind of part of the hippie mode. And you see throughout certainly the early decades of Vajrayana coming into the West and Tantra and different kinds of spiritual modes, different gurus, practices, et cetera, where there's simultaneously this desire to kind of, you know, break the mold, leave society, control your intake, impose asceticism, but it's still done in this kind of spirit of exploration of experience, of pleasure, of, you know, intensifying experience. And it's a really interesting model. And I think it's actually really helpful for us because we're in a really strange time where on the one hand, a lot of contemporary spirituality and wellness and self-help stuff, you know, you can draw the lines directly to experiments in the 1960s and especially the 1970s, 1980s. But there's been some like major shifts as well, almost polar, you know, 180 degree shifts around issues of, you know, power, of abuse, of danger, of consent. And that's all happened for very good reasons, because a lot of really painful, disastrous things happened as part of that move through time where we can look back from a 70s perspective and one that I frankly still share. I look at someone like Chogyan Trungpa as kind of this erratic genius. Like I cannot not acknowledge the power of his books, the role he played in the spiritual revolution of the time, the extraordinary effect he had on people I respect, you know, really an amazing, wild, unexpected kind of character. And yet from another perspective, he committed acts or was part of uh, social situations that many people find reprehensible. And that if I look at through that lens, I too find reprehensible. What would I do if I was there? I would like to think that I would say, hey, this is shitty. We have to stop this now. I mean, there's all sorts of complexities. I don't want to get into the details about Trungpa or Rajneesh or a lot of these other experiments, but they featured a kind of openness and risk and quality of transgression that was clearly very powerful and attractive for many people at the time, but had real costs. And I think one of the interesting, again, paradoxical situations that we're in now, you see this in psychedelics, you see it in other domains of, let's call it wellness, is that people want the goods, but they want way more safety and ways of being assured, of feeling safe, feeling acknowledged, having rules of consent, having ways of pushing back against power excesses because of all of the suffering and excesses of the last 30, 40 years. Like just 
Zen alone. It's just been absurd. And each case is different. There's different ways to talk about it. But the number of sexual abuse situations, including some people who were really predators, taking place like in the Zendo room is like, okay, clearly this something's wrong here. We can't keep doing this. But then there's this other move where you build a lot of structures and a lot of processes to prevent that new rules, rules about the interaction between students and teachers, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this open question. Can you get the goods from a situation where things are so controlled? I think you can get some goods, but there is a real role that risk plays in spirituality. And it's hard to talk about because if you try to say anything positive about it, it sounds like you're saying, oh, the suffering that these people went through is no big deal. Oh, we don't have to worry about it morally. Hey, don't be so oversensitive. And I'm not saying that, but it is really complicated. And though our contemporary culture doesn't really like these kinds of complications, they prefer to take sort of very clearly defined roles where like you can't quote Trunkpa because Trunkpa was an abuser. So he's off the table. And I'm like, ooh, it's more complicated than that because I'm a historian and I'm a complicated thinker. I like nuance and ambiguity, whatever. So I, I realize I'm kind of part of the story that I'm telling here too. But it is something we kind of have to wrestle with. And I would put it in a really simple question that everybody can just think about themselves. What is the role of risk in spiritual practice and spiritual development? And phrasing it around the term risk, I think, actually helps us shift the dialogue a little bit away from particular acts, who's got power, who's got not power, and recognize that everybody is kind of agreeing to enter into situations that aren't entirely under their control. Even a Vipassana retreat, you go into and it's, you know, very ascetic and there's not a lot of stooping going on in the corners. You know, it's pretty safe in that way, but you can still have incredibly difficult experiences. You might even have a break. You might even lose it. You might even have to leave the retreat. They might even have to call a doctor. That's part of the risk profile. And if you are aware of what the situation is, you're like, okay, I'm going to run that risk. But there's all sorts of risks. And once you start thinking about risk in a creative, challenging, sort of dynamic way, then a lot of these things take on different kinds of qualities. So if you look at, just to tie it to an earlier part of discussion, what is that extra initiatory magical power that cannabis had in like where I grew up in the 1970s and early 1980s? Well, it's illegal. If they find it at school, you're totally screwed. You might get expelled. You'll certainly get suspended. You might have all these things happen to you. And that was relatively mild. I wasn't in Texas where that could just completely destroy your life. So smoking that weed, you know, in a bar or wherever in, in Austin in 1975 was like really quite powerful because it's risky. Just that. The risk might not be there. Maybe it's immoral risk, meaning that the law is immoral, but it's actual concrete risk that becomes part of the pleasure and part of the initiatory power, that kind of deeper, even sacred sort of transformative quality. And so by thinking in terms of risk, I think it helps shift the ground a little bit and gives us a more 
I don't know, a clearer way to think about how we move through these possibilities. Yeah, if you think about worldwide initiation rituals that young, typically males go through, it almost always includes a tremendous amount of pain and suffering, but also the very real risk of death. That's part of it. And I think it's so interesting that we want to have all the benefits of the initiation now without any of the risk. And of course, that's completely understandable. Imagine being the parents of someone who dies in an initiation ritual. I mean, that's horrible. I don't want to put anyone through that. And as a society, we don't want to put people through that. And yet, what's the cost? And is there some kind of safe replacement? And it might be the case that you can't get the initiatory power without some very real risk. And so you have to ask yourself, what risks are worth it in your own life, not in the life of somebody else? And so it's so interesting to notice how in a very reasonable, logical, totally understandable way that I have tremendous respect for and try to accommodate as much as possible, people want to remove all the risk, even minor risk from their meditation practice. They want to know exactly what to do and exactly how long it will take and exactly what the outcome will be and constantly optimize it so that there's zero risk. And it's very interesting because, again, while I try to accommodate that as much as you can, you can't really make those kind of promises. And anyone who does, I certainly don't trust those kind of assurances. You know, it will take this long and this will be the result is just not how it works. I think there's some risk. I mean, maybe the risk that we're talking about here is wasting your time, but that's not an insignificant risk. But even that, people are trying to, for very understandable reasons, trying to organize away or be assured is not going to happen. And I wonder if this is not just some kind of balance or pendulum that swings back and forth. I think it's so interesting that our society became so permissive at a certain point growing up in the mid-70s, you know, is just like the ultimate, there are no rules kind of world in many senses, that now we're swinging so hard back into incredibly structured, almost taboo level stuff, even though it's kind of split into two separate societies with two separate taboo structures. So I wonder if in spirituality, it doesn't have a similar going back and forth between total permissiveness and tons of risk taking that leads to really bad outcomes for some people, and then swinging back to becoming so formulaic and safe that maybe it doesn't really do that much. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that's fascinating. I have two thoughts there. One is if people listening are going like, I don't know, guys, we have a duty and obligation to make these things as risk-free as possible. They're really dangerous and da 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 is just to think about extreme sports. If you know anybody who does extreme sports, if you follow it, if you've watched the YouTube videos, you'll see, and even just skiing, here's a situation where there's a relatively high risk of injury. And in some cases, big wave riding, free climbing, free diving, there's big risks of possible death. And very few of us look at that and see it as immoral. We might see it as crazy, as excessive, 
as something I wouldn't want to do. Or maybe if you're a parent, you don't want your child to do. But I bet even a lot of parents are like, yeah, I'm worried about Susie doing the free diving, but that's pretty cool. Like, I'm pretty proud of her, you know, because we all have the sense of the value of it. And if you talk to people who do extreme sports and who put themselves on the line, they'll talk about like fear and risk and overcoming and ecstasy. I mean, real cognitive effects. I mean, I've heard people describe base jumping in just frankly spiritual terms. And it totally makes sense to me. I mean, I'm not one of those people, but it totally makes sense to me. You know, and some of us get some version of it with like bungee dumping or even skydiving that's really actually pretty safe, but you have to go through this like death rebirth process. But very few of us look at that as immoral. And yet when we go into the realm of psychedelics, of spiritual experience, of spiritual groups that sometimes have very weird and maybe even kind of dangerous social relations going on, that we see those risks as being incredibly freighted with moral implications. And the difference makes sense. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a difference. I'm just saying, if you look at potentially morally problematic situations, primarily in terms of risk, they change their quality. And I say this really specifically because I think about, again, I'm just going to put my head back in the 70s, I'm going to say, like, okay, there's a new Rajneesh ashram in the 80s up in Oregon, and it's pretty crazy. I hear some pretty wild stuff out of there. You know, actually, it's maybe kind of fucked up, but I'm going to go and check it out because that just sounds too wild. There's a way of looking at that, not as, oh, somebody got fooled to think that this man actually had spiritual power when actually it was a cult and people were done it. Okay, you could describe it that way if you want. I think it's more interesting to say it's a risky environment. It's a real risky environment. There's actual risk there. There's risk that you might get hurt. There's risk you might get physically hurt. You know, they had some very dynamic into violent practices that people broke arms, da, da, da. You might get lost in sexuality, whether you call that abusive or excessive or sex maniac or whatever it is, you get lost in that. You might get in a weird situation where you feel trapped and you might get stuck or something like that. And we can look at all that morally and say, that's horrible. The cults are bad. We should eradicate them. The state should come in and modify it. We should refuse, da, da, da. And again, I'm not going to argue against that because people get hurt. And I understand that that's part of the function of law and f function of ethics to try to not have other people get hurt. But again, if you look at it in terms of the individual looking at that situation, there's a way in which like, I'm going to roll the dice on this one. Now, maybe a lot of those people don't have that awareness. They're just going because it's cool or their friend tells them about it or something. And I'm not trying to deny the complications of that and who has responsibility for those kinds of decisions. But it's also the case that we should continue to remember that many of us are adults in the room and we do assess risks when we make decisions about, say, a backpack trip or whether we're going to skydive or et cetera. And we also do it with social relations. Is that going to be weird? I don't know. That person, I don't know if I trust it. Could be a lot of fun. Could be really interesting. Could stretch me. I could find something new. And I really think it's important for people to wrestle with their own question of risk on an individual level, because we go too quickly to the kind of social, moral, legal zone where we go, well, we should really push against these things because people are getting hurt and our primary 
obligation is to prevent that for other people, even though I might choose to kind of enter into a risky environment. And that makes sense. But I think we also need to wrestle with it on an individual level. And we might come out in the same place and go, yeah, this stuff is unacceptable at this point in history, whatever like a 70s weird scene with Trungpa or Rajneesh was like, unacceptable, impossible. We can't do it. We don't want it. It hurts people. Fine. But there are still other forms of risk, you know, falling in love with the teacher, becoming obsessed with the practice, going crazy, dropping out. There's all sorts of things that happen, particularly if things really start to take off. I love the extreme sports example because I've just never heard it talked about in a moralistic framework. Like, that should be illegal because it's immoral. I've just never heard anyone even hint in that direction. And yet you can see a case for like, hey, if someone's a parent of very young children and a breadwinner or whatever, going out and risking dying all the time or having some grievous injury actually could be considered immoral. In any case, here's my question. What is it about extreme sports? And I think the obvious answer is, well, it's an adult freely choosing to do that, knowing the risks. But I'll say beyond that, is there anything about the extreme sports example that if we reflected it back into psychedelic use or if we reflected it back into spiritual communities or something that would shift the view in such a way that we could see that under certain circumstances, an adult choosing to have those risks makes sense. And it's not just obviously that they're either a victim or they're stupid, which is how it's normally framed. Yeah. I think the place to start with that answer is, of course, the power relationship with other people that in the extreme sports example that, you know, even though you're part of a crew or maybe there's somebody who teaches you how to do it. And so there's some kind of trainer, master student dynamic that's going on for whoever's teaching you how to move deeper into the sport, that we basically think about it as an autonomous decision. You know, I'm going to go and take this risk. I'm the one who's risking my own body. I'm choosing to risk my own body. Whereas when we get into social environments, particularly where there's weird religions or psychological relations involved, then you get into all the power stuff. So the risk in the cult is a social risk, a psychological risk that is dependent partly on these power relations that usually have the power somewhere else, at least from the perspective of somebody who's joining in to the situation. So that's where the first place to point to a difference is. But this really leads into a fascinating discussion, very important right now to reflect on, which is the question of the role and appropriateness of a guide in psychedelic experience, especially psychedelic therapy. If it's psychedelic therapy, then there's a guide. There's an expert. They might be a facilitator, or you could even call them a shaman, but that's sort of a religious context or you know, not quite a therapeutic context, so maybe it's easier to keep that aside for now. But there's some kind of psychological expert. And why is that expert there? Well, they'll tell you that it makes it safer because these people are experts, they've been trained, they've gotten training degrees, they've gotten accredited by the state, therefore they have the knowledge of how to deal with difficult situations. So me, as a psychedelic naive person who's terrified of the idea but thinks that mushrooms might help me with my depression, I'm willing to go into the situation because, oh, thank God, there's like a guide there. But of course we know that 
psychologists, therapists uh, can be abusive and can use their power in all the ways that we think of a cult leader using their power, you know, and there's always bad apples or whatever, but it's actually structurally in the relationship. This person has the expertise. You don't have the expertise. They are setting up the guidance. You are relying on them to create the container and, and maintain the container. And that's difficult enough, even when you don't have drugs in the picture, because, you know, anybody who's done a lot of drugs knows that once you put drugs in the picture, then like things just get more intense, you know, crushes get more intense. The sense of magic powers gets more intense. The gaze through the eyes gets more intense. I mean, like everything gets amplified. So of course, when we have psychedelic therapeutic situations, secular situations, let's call them, there's going to be tons of abuse. It's going to be ridiculous. Let's be honest, you know? And so when I think about this, I go, hmm, what's the safest way for people to take drugs? Is it to have an expert, a guide in the room, a power relationship like that? No, actually, I think the best thing, it's not always possible. I would say the best thing is for there to be a small, tight community of friends who have horizontal peer-to-peer -peer relationships. You know, somebody might be a little bit more expert, might be an older brother or a mentor kind of character, but it's basically a horizontal set of relationships. And the experience of the drug is a collective operation that hopefully happens in a fairly benign environment. Maybe nature, you go out, you know, you got some food, you got a little thing, you got a place to huddle, maybe you got a tent in case you need to go inside or something. That's the best without a guide in that way. And that's my generation talking. That's my growing up experience in Southern California talking. And I realize that for many people that is no longer appropriate. I bring it up as an example, however, because A, I think a lot of people who had those experiences would agree. And B, it points towards this paradox in our contemporary psychedelic moment where we want to make as risk-free an environment as possible to reap the efficiency of the psychological healing. And yet we're hanging it on the presence of a guide who goes through some kind of program and gets some kind of approval or accreditation when we know that relationship is gonna get screwy a lot. And we already have evidence of that happening. And you can say that, oh, these are just bad apples. And then you're not really paying attention, I don't think, to the situation. So. That power relationship is really a significant one in terms of how we relate with it. And my point of view, and I'll stop, is just that that's fine to go in and have a situation where there is somebody that you trust and you have a relationship with. But that relationship has to be seen as part of the risk. It's not like the thing that takes all the risk away, because that infantilizing attitude is what sets people up to get screwed. <laughs> it's the opposite. You got to go, okay, this guy, he's like lead circles or, you know, it's a shaman or a facilitator or like this one, I've heard great things about this doctor and I really like them and I like, I really trust them and stuff like that. Great, great. But recognize that you're entering into a magical power relationship that can go awry and does go awry just the same way that spiritual leaders through time immemorial have probably gone awry. It's part of the picture. As you probably have heard, I've talked about the role of the guru in spiritual practice in many, many, many earlier podcasts. 
And it just seems like an obvious, not complete parallel, but very similar situation, right? Where in this case, in the psychedelic use, we're setting up the guide as basically the guru. And so, of course, you're going to get all the same problems you get with guru abuse, right? And you get the same benefits as well, but there's obvious risks. And it's not just the case that this person is always going to be really helpful. I will say that the psychotherapy industry, especially in California, has done a really good job of trying to minimize those sorts of risks in regular psychotherapy. The mechanisms now in place to try to thwart the abusing psychologist or psychotherapist are really impressive. There's a lot there. And so if the sitter in a psychedelic session is a licensed psychologist, they're under those same laws. And so they really are bound by those, at least hopefully. But a lot of times they're not licensed. And a lot of times, even if they are licensed, there's still going to be stuff going on. I think there's an obvious parallel to the spiritual scene and gurus and something that as a society, we're just going to have to grow up a little bit about. This is what I'm hearing in our discussion over and over again is there's a certain taking on of adulthood that is really important in all of these relationships. And the guru relationship can be tremendously infantilizing, as you were saying, that the role of the psychedelic sitter can be as well, right? And in some ways, that's maybe part of the magic of it, part of the initiatory power, part of the sparkly wonder of the whole thing is that it puts you into a childlike state. As we all remember, the world is more magical in a childlike state. And yet that's where the abuse comes in. That's where the power dynamic shifts and all that. And so to bring it back into the spiritual realm and the meditation world, One of the big things that seems to be shifting really powerfully is moving away from gurus and moving away from the acolyte model to either the friend model or let's say maybe the more informed friend model where the power dynamic, the differential, the power differential is drastically shrunk and flattened. And again, there's something that's lost there, but it also really mitigates the risk profile in a way that is probably a good thing, you know, in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we are. And again, I want to emphasize that I'm not calling for a return to some earlier domain of increased risk because of some of the benefits that that kind of stress or a roll of the dice has. I think that what you're talking about is the appropriate you know, response to the situation because there are so many real questions about power and abuse. There's so much obvious history of things that are difficult and people are different and they expect different things and they have different kinds of relationships to risk and to the sense of safety. And so that kind of relationship that you're talking about more of a friend group, which is the same kind of thing that I was saying with the psychedelic situation that yes, a therapist can be excellent and can be kept in their lane, so to speak, by the very mechanisms of accreditation and training and that that makes them more reliable in some ways that the best model is still a kind of friend model or a model where in a psychedelic circle, there is a facilitator, but the facilitator actively brushes off the kinds of projections of power 
that students or participants sometimes even often bring to those situations. So one of the great sort of tragic paradoxes, or not even paradoxes really, is the situation of spiritual seekers going down to the Amazon to take ayahuasca in a semi-traditional kind of context, which of course has already been transformed by the tourist industry, et cetera, et cetera. But bringing guru scripts, the idea that the facilitator is some kind of spiritual master who has da da da, and then sort of projecting them on individuals who, even in a traditional context, are just functioning really different sociologically, anthropologically, not to mention the complexities of the tourist industry. So yes, they are spiritual masters in a way, but not like gurus. That's a script that's inside of, you know, Euro-American seeker mind because of the experiences in the 60s and 70s that's just not appropriate for that situation, let alone possibly for our situation, you know, now. But I think that uh, one analogy that's worth also thinking here just to complicate stuff and get into a little bit more trouble is that there's the analogy, just the way I think extreme sports are a really important analogy to keep in mind. The other analogy to keep in mind is uh, falling in love, is that we all know that you fall in love and you can fall in love with the wrong person. And even then, there's this extraordinary period, especially early on, where like all sorts of things become available. Our dream life is advanced. For many people, I think in our society, it's still like the most sort of magical time they'll live. You know, they'll go maybe childhood, but once they're adults, you get some magic back when you're in love. And that these more dangerous relationships in a spiritual context, whether they're maybe a, a psychedelic person or a guru or whatever, is they have some clear analogs to something like falling in love, which is risky. And, you know, so I think we're at a place where we need to develop a friendship model, a peer-to-peer -peer model, or a more sort of like a trainer model. Again, maybe sports are the best metaphor. It's like your teacher is not a guru, they're a trainer, you know, and we like trainers. We like coaches. There are coaches. That kind of power relationship, we accept. We're agreeing to that. We're agreeing to somebody to even give us grief about, come on, let's get going, let's get going, let's wake up. <laughs> but there's still this kind of more romantic side that I don't think is going to go out of the picture entirely and that the more that we can become aware of it and assess our own willingness to kind of enter into relationships like that, and I think the less that they'll sneak up and bite us on the ass. I want to say something more about taboo and particularly the sacred power of taboo or what I will also call the anomalous or the anomaly. So there's this really wonderful classic in anthropological literature by a woman named Mary Douglas, Purity and Danger, I think it came out in the late 60s or, or early 1970s. And she was a symbolic anthropologist, which means she looked at societies in terms of their symbol systems. And she had one very simple but really profound question that we should all make a koan at some point for our own lives, which is, what do you do with dirt? What do you do with matter out of place? And in particular, how do different societies create different symbolic ways of organizing matter out of place, things that are chaotic, things that are messy? things that are maybe abject. And 
So she did some really kind of interesting work because this has a lot to do with taboo. Like where is those things that don't fit and how we need to kind of wall them off because they threaten the symbolic integrity of an ordered symbolic world. And one of her great examples, she talks about it in terms of the Hebrew Bible and some of the rules about what animals are kosher or not kosher. And She later changed her mind about that. So it's not as good analogy, even though more people know those rules. But it's something similar that you find in many, many societies. There's rules about what animals can be eaten, what animals are sacred, what animals are to be avoided, et cetera, et cetera. And she talks about a people in Africa who have this really interesting relationship with the pangolin because it's sort of a weird creature. It's like, well, it looks like a mammal, but it's got scales and it rolls into a ball, doesn't run away. It's like a weird, it's weird, right? It's a weird animal. Doesn't really fit our like nice ordered symbolic, oh, this is what a mammal does. This is what a fish does, et cetera, et cetera. So she talks about the way that the pangolin then becomes like this taboo object. It's anomalous. It doesn't fit. That's the way she explained why pigs are not kosher, because they have hooves like ungents, but they don't chew their cud. They don't fit. They're weird. And so therefore, they're taboo. They're not kosher. Again, she had another explanation for that later on. But in the case of the Lele, it was like the pangolin becomes really powerful because it's anomalous. And so there are certain rituals, like initiation rituals, where you eat some pangolin. You know, it's kind of like goes back to the tantric stuff we talked at the beginning. You're like, whoa, I'm eating the thing that's like the dirt, that's like the thing that doesn't fit. I'm eating the anomaly and that has spiritual power. So it's a really beautiful way of looking at things and how these more traditional systems worked. And it allows us to recognize something really, which is in a way, it doesn't make sense. Wouldn't the sacred thing be the way that the society is ordered, that order is sacred and light is sacred and clarity is sacred? But when you have any kind of order, there's always these boundary zones, and those need to be maintained. You need to actively maintain those boundaries against chaos, against dirt, against paradox, against confusion. And that creates a space for taboo and therefore transgression. And it helps explain why things that are taboo when they are transgressed, actually have kind of a sacred power because you're at once realizing the relativity of your symbolic universe, but you're also kind of like acknowledging that part of you that's outside of that framework. So there's really a real kind of power to that. And I think it helps explain today why anomalies are so interesting, particularly like, what's a good example? UFOs. They don't fit. We still don't know where to put them. Is it bullshit? Is it a secret that the government's keeping? Is it a transdimensional, you know, fairy force from the bowels of the earth? Is it just delusion? Where do we put these stories? When we meet people who give us UFO, no, I had a UFO experience. No, I had an abduction experience. Where do we put that? It doesn't go anywhere comfortably. It's anomalous. Same thing with cryptids. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of the paranormal stuff, and it's kind of why the weird shit goes along with the sacred, at least in some zones, or at least, or spirituality, that you find spiritual people who are interested in meditation and psychedelics, and they get into all this stuff. It's because there's something attractive about anomalies, about the weird, that has to do with the way it seems to open up a larger dimension that 
relativizes our fundamental concepts about things. So even though we don't have the same sort of moral laws, or at least universal moral laws that more homogenous societies did in the past, we do have these sort of ontological laws, like UFOs probably don't exist because that just sounds like bullshit to me, or weird physics, or the paranormal, like, come on, telepathy, there's no way that that could happen because we have brains and da-da-da-da. Well, so if you start to think about telepathy, if you start to open up to the possibility that it's real, if you open up to people who have anecdotal experience, maybe you start to seek it yourself. Maybe like, oh, on psychedelics, I'm going to see if I can get a little telepathy going. Oh, man, I got some telepathy. What am I going to do with that? Where does it fit? So even if telepathy itself is neither sacred nor not sacred, the obsession with it or the the seeking of these sort of paranormal slippages are one of the ways that modern people, contemporary people, access the sacred precisely because it's anomalous. So when people want to keep things weird, you know, like keep Portland weird, or in my case, keep psychedelics weird, it's partly already like a rear guard action. If you have to call for it, you're probably already losing. But the spirit of it is that it's really important to recognize and tune towards those places in your own imagination, your own conceptual universe, and in your society's conceptual universe that are anomalous, because those anomalies still have this kind of sacred taboo power. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. The more we use the word taboo and talk about it, it just brings up for me so strongly how modern Western society, but particularly, very specifically, modern American society, has really strong, strong taboos all of a sudden. It seems like that have developed in just a couple years or like a decade. But these are divided into two separate communities with two completely separate systems of taboo. Absolutely. No, no. I mean, because of the way in which the kind of complexity that we've been risking here and, you know, we triggered some people or maybe we said some stuff that from another angle isn't exactly maybe appropriate. I don't know. It's hard to say. We've been risking complexity in this conversation, but that is obviously not the dominant tone, certainly on social media, certainly around a lot of moral and political and identity-oriented issues. But it's really important to think about, again, the function of taboo and the way that taboo both has a power and can have an excessive power that is worth kind of deconstructing. And they're kind of both part of the picture. Because if you think, for example, the way that a lot of socially progressive issues, that's, you know, I will use the word woke just because we all know what it means. I'm not being pejorative about it. That a lot of those positions take the form of you can't talk about this. You can't talk about that. You can't talk about this. If you suggest this, you are showing that you're not sensitive and aware of the complexity, et cetera, et cetera. There are actually forbidden words. Yeah, right. They're literally forbidden words and that these have real effects in, say, university environments and that people can get in trouble for bringing up topics that in my generation would have been seen as fascinating, rich opportunities for complex wrestling with the difficult complexities of human life can be seen now as actively unsafe or hurtful and be castigated or prevented. And so obviously things are a lot more complicated than that, but this part of our political moment is important because then these things become taboos 
that become absolutely delicious to, you know, profane or transgress by people on the right, and particularly these sort of sarcastic, cynical, manipulative, meme-spewing trolls on the right. You give the trolls food by having very clearly defined taboos that you hold to in a very serious way. And so they support one another. And I'm not saying that means to not have some form of these ethical demands, but it becomes a complicated feedback loop that actually gives people on the right a certain kind of power. And I think especially a lot of young men who get attracted, young white men in most cases, who get attracted to aspects of the alt-right or the hard right, they get there initially because it's just sort of fun and freedom and craziness and, you know, saying fuck you to society. And it's because those structures are there that it produces the attraction of the other. And then that might just be an initial move. And then a lot of other things are going on. It's much more complicated than this. But that part of it is really key to pay attention to. Every time you set up a new taboo, you've given an enemy the capacity to demonstrate their freedom or their correctness over that possibility. And it becomes very difficult to do in a complicated situation like we're in right now in terms of how do you make demands that don't just set up other opportunities for that kind of politics. Eric, thank you so much. It's such a fascinating topic. There's actually quite a bit more to say on it, but we're going to wrap it up for today. Yeah, thank you so much. I've been thinking about this stuff recently and haven't had a good juicy opportunity to talk about it. So it's so great to pass it through your lens and your ideas as well around, especially the tantric spiritual stuff. It's really a very rich topic. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. 
If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Listening.